You may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, maybe um, are just checking out Jesus and his church, um, we have printed the text for you on page 10 of the worship guide. Um, if you are visiting, I'm Paul Joyner, I'm one of the pastors here, and we would love to have your contact info if you want to get on our email newsletter list or find out more information about the church. You can leave that contact info just on one of those visitor cards and drop it in the offering plate in the back or up here um, in the front. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to look at verses 12 uh, through 34 this morning. This is God's Word. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And Christ has, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is God's word. Would you join with me as we pray and ask his blessing on his word preached? 
Lord Jesus, crucified for sin, breaking sin's powerful reign, raised from the dead, seated in heaven now with all power and authority, we pray, step forward and preach good news to us. May the sword of your word that comes out of your mouth cut us deeply so that we could be healed by you. Convict us of sin where necessary. Encourage us. Strengthen us. And make your face shine on us. We pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen. Well, uh, hope is, maybe this is not an overstatement, essentially important. You can't just, can't function without hope. Viktor Frankl, during uh, the Holocaust, noticed this. He, he noticed that between Christmas, he was in Auschwitz, between Christmas of 1944 and New Year's Day of 1945, the infirmity populated in, at a rate that had never been seen before in Auschwitz. And that people, more people died in that week than in any other period, in any other week, any time. It just exploded with tragedy, sickness, and death. And nothing had changed. No extra effort to exterminate the Jews in the gas chamber. There was no food shortage, no uptake um, in the disease that ran rampant. Conditions of living had changed, and yet people were dying at an unprecedented rate. Victor was a psychologist by training and so he went into this and studied what's going on and this is what he had found the people had hoped that they would be home by Christmas of 1944 and so when Christmas day came and went they literally lost hope and died Frankel's conclusion was the one thing that no one can take from you is hope there's he says hope is just an exercise of the will and no matter what conditions you face you can't have hope robbed from you just push forward and find it in yourself and let hope reign supreme against all circumstances but if it was only that easy then against all odds we would be able to tackle depression at will many of Described the dark night of the soul as, at its core, the loss of hope. Hope flees. And for those of us who have been there, in the dark night of the soul, you can't will yourself out of it. Hope flees. In that moment when it's so dark and hopeless, you are better off trying to catch a chickadee with a pair of chopsticks than willing yourself into hope again. We need hope more than we need food. You can live without food for a period of time, but we can barely live an afternoon without hope. Malcolm Gladwell has got a fascinating interview with Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin, if you don't know the name, is probably one of the most prolific producers of music in our current day. 
He has put his hands to everything from some of Adele's greatest hits to the Red Hot Chili Peppers to revamping Johnny Cash's career to the Beastie Boys to Mick Jagger. I mean, Rick Rubin's put his hands to everything. If you don't know Rick Rubin, you know his music. And, and Rubin's kind of talking about the creative process. And, and this is what he says. He says he makes the point that in order for creativity to be set free, you have to believe in something bigger than yourself so that you have hope. And when you have hope, then you can dream. And when you can dream, the creative process is set free. It's a brilliant insight on his part. And then almost he follows this up with almost just a dud. And he says, it just doesn't really matter if your belief is true, just that it inspires you. Now, here's the reality. If I told you that you had won the lottery, and then you went out and lived in light of that new reality, and you bought a new car and took up a once-in-a-lifetime vacation, bought your wife a new enormous diamond ring, and then I told you, hey, I... You didn't really win the lottery. I just wanted to inspire you with a great story. True hope, the reality for true hope to exist, the reality is actually more important than your belief in it. It is actually more important for true hope to have happened. It has to be grounded in an actual Event. You could not believe it's true. If it's true, it will affect your life more than if it's not true and you believe it. It is more important to have hope grounded in history, in an actual thing that has happened, than it is to receive an inspiring story. That's why Paul is so intent on defining the center of the gospel. In the death and resurrection of Jesus. Back in chapter 4, if you, or verse 4 of chapter 15, if you have your Bible, look back there. You'll remember that he said to Corinthians, these things are of first importance. Not just first in terms of priority, but first in terms of holding the center. The center of what God has done are, is in the person of Jesus Christ, particularly in these events. He died in accordance to Scripture, was buried, and was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. You can kind of see what Paul's doing. He's saying, in essence, here you can think about the message of God through His Word in concentric circles. The farthest out, the theme of the Bible is God and his work. That is what is being told from the very beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. God and his work. And then this next circle in. God and his work is most clearly seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But then in the center. The center of the work of Jesus Christ is his death for sin and his resurrection for new life. That's why Paul in verse 14 through 17 is just putting, he's literally camping all of the hope of the gospel on the resurrection of Jesus. Starting in verse 14, he says this, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, we are even found to be 
lying about God, misrepresenting what he's done in the world because we testified about God that he raised Christ and he didn't raise him from the dead, then the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if Christ, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, it's a good story. Or of all people most to be pitied. Something actually had to happen in history. God had to do something for hope to reign. Otherwise, this whole thing just dies. Pun intended. He's hanging the entire hope of the world on the resurrection of Jesus. An actual historical event that happened because God accomplished something in that. Not just an inspiring story, God did something. Now this is actually unique amongst world religions. If, if someone were to be able to prove that the original Buddha had never lived, it wouldn't invalidate the teachings. The teachings are the message. The teachings as the message would just continue on. That would be fine. It wouldn't really crush much of anything. The same in part is also true of Islam. If, if someone were to dig up evidence that Muhammad was not an actual figure, then it's possible to reclaim through a few maneuvers the message because the teachings are the message. But this is where the gospel of Jesus is so radically different in the pantheon of world religions. We said last week that the gospel is not primarily a teaching, but an announcement. It's news of events that have happened. It's not instructions on how to live. News is proclaimed. This is what God has done. News of what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Everything, Paul says, actually hangs on those events. And if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, it all crumbles. Because the news of the gospel is God worked. God redeemed. God has saved. So verse 20. Everything hangs on the actual resurrection of Jesus because everything got ruined by the actual historical work of the first Adam. In verse 20. But if in Christ, if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, it's kind of assuming, you know, he's just making the argument. Everything that I've said before, it's kind of null and void because Christ has been raised. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And here's how it kind of works out. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ all can be made alive. I mean, the reality of just the way life works is that our lives are always affected deeply by the actions of others. Children, whether it's your brother or sister doing something, that affects you. Whether you are the victim of trauma, you realize that that affects you so very deeply that even your body cries out. The actions of others affect us deeply. We can't live in community and not have the actions of others. We'll put it on a grandest scale. This is the way God has built the world. He put the first Adam 
out in humanity, the first man, and said, here the entirety of humanity rides on your shoulders. Wherever you go, you will take all of humanity. You are their representative. What goes for you will go for them. And so the first Adam fell. And Paul kind of is point, at this point rolling out a case study to prove this is actually how the world works. The historical fall of the first Adam affected all of humanity because in Adam all die. Now, if you haven't noticed, the death rate for humanity across history is right at 100%. Because the curse of sin all die. Because all humanity is wrapped up in Adam representing us as the first man. And as the first man, when he fell, he brought God's curse on all of us. All are born guilty and captive to sin. Therefore, God's wrath is on all of humanity from the very beginning. Evidence of that, the curse of sin is death and all die. Death is a formidable foe. No one has been able to defeat it. We can lengthen our lives just a bit, maybe push it off a little bit more, but no one can stop the onward march of death. This is what Paul means in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. Seeing the world, this is the way the Bible sees the world. The Bible sees the world as divided up into two ages, if you will. When sin entered the world, death reigned through sin. And sin reigned as the captive of all of humanity. All of us are under the reign of sin apart from Christ and if you belong to that age, if Christ hasn't been raised, there is still the reign of sin. And proof of that is the reign of death as God's curse against sin. It gives us a sense of what God's primary mission in the world is. To redeem what sin has destroyed. To undo the curse that sin brought on us. This is why in verse 3 again he says. Christ died for our sins. In accordance to scripture. So in God's kindness. In his work of redemption. He looks back and says. That first man fell in history. And he brought the curse of sin into the world. And the only way to undo that is if I put forward another one who in history will suffer the penalty for the curse of sin in his body and then be raised, bringing in a new era. So God put on the second Adam, Jesus, death, his wrath, he stood in our place so that 
he could suffer for sins once for all. And if he remained in the grave, then it was an ineffective endeavor. He would just have been another man who, like the rest of us, suffered the penalty for sin in death. But God raised him from the dead. And that resurrection from the dead was just not another man coming to life. There had plenty of people who had come back to life after having been dead throughout the pages of Scripture, even in the Old Testament, multiple times. Jesus' own ministry raised multiple people from the dead, from his friend Lazarus to a little girl who had died. This is a different, we might call those just coming back to life. This is different. This is resurrection. This isn't just a dead man coming back to life in Jesus. This is the sin Cursed man coming back to life in victory by God. God raised him from the dead after he went into the grave suffering the curse of sin. That means that Jesus' resurrection is an epic changing event. Ushering in the new creation. An event that changes literally everything. That's what an epic changing event is. A new era has arrived when Jesus broke the curse of sin and God raised him from the dead. When God said, that's enough. All of my people's sin are placed on his shoulders. And just as the first Adam brought all into the curse, the second Adam is leading us all out into victory. An epic changing event ushers in a new era. A wedding is an epic changing event. It happens once. It's an event. But its effects change every aspect of your life. And you actually have to grow into this new reality. You say, I do. That doesn't mean all of a sudden you've got it figured out how to be married. You got to grow into that reality. An event happened, ushers in a new era, and you kind of spend the rest of your life trying to figure out how married life works. Or not figuring out for most of us. You've got to find out new customs. You've got to put away, you realize I'm bringing baggage in from my previous life that I've got to now work with my spouse to kind of figure out how to do things in a new and different way. Um, we've got to learn how to put our lives together because this event happened. We've got to adjust. Literally everything's on the table to be readjusted. That is an epic changing event. Child giving birth to your first child is also you are not a parent. Now all of a sudden you are a parent and you realize I have no idea what I'm doing. It's an epic changing event. You spend the rest of your life hopefully repenting and figuring out and asking your children for forgiveness as you lead them forward to the riches of Jesus Christ. Nothing is the same and nothing in our lives is untouched after a new era is ushered in. And since Jesus has been raised Nothing is the same. His resurrection has ushered in a new era. An era where grace now reigns triumphant. An era 
where there is forgiveness of sins without end. An era where there is tremendous hope for tremendous change in any of our lives when we come to Jesus. It's a promise of the resurrection. The death and resurrection is, I'll take you as you are. My sin, my death for your sins is sufficient. You have to add nothing to it. But the hope of the resurrection is when you come to me, I won't leave you as you are. And so it's, it's helpful, I think, just to think of the Christian as someone who has already in part experienced the resurrection of the dead in their own lives. That's what it means to become a Christian. That's why we use the language and the Bible uses the language of new birth. Being born again. At times, even when Paul is asked by the Corinthians in his second letter, they're like, where do we, if Jesus has been raised, where do we see new creation? Where do we see this evidence? Paul says, if anyone's in Christ, there you go. The new creation. The old's gone, the new's come. That person has been radically changed from the inside out. God raised them from the dead. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made him alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. So it's in other words, it's true about Jesus. It's, what's true about the first Adam, if you're not in Christ, is true about you. He acted as your head. He brought the curse of sin on your life. You are all born guilty and sinful. But in Christ. The second Adam, what's true about Jesus, is true about you. And he died to sin, and he's raised you to new life. And it's interesting that after this, well, I wish we had time to kind of work through all of the implications of this, uh, the resurrection, because Paul kind of then takes it out. He's been talking about the bodily resurrection, um, that all will experience who are in Christ will be raised from the dead. I've often said that the place where I want to be when Jesus comes back is out in the cemetery. There are a lot of brothers and sisters I've buried out there that I cannot wait to see again, to hug again when Jesus comes back. It's a great hope. But that's not where Paul applies this to the Corinthian church in verse 29. In verse 29, he kind of brings their hope back to the present life. <laughs> he just, he just, he's kind of like, okay, now let me apply this. Don't go on sinning. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Verse 33. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God as I say this to your shame. He's like, look, this should impact daily life because if, if you've been raised from the dead and the resurrection power of Jesus is at work at you, you are being literally transformed from the inside out. It's, TV has found this proven pattern. Just repeat, 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 repeat. And it goes like this, find an, you know, something old and make it new. Find an old, frumpy man and give them an extreme makeover and ta-da, you've changed their lives and everything now is better. Take an old, frumpy house, redo it for somebody, and ta-da, you've changed their lives and it's something better. But you know, you've simply only changed the outside of them. The corruption that remains on the inside of us is all still 
there. And that is the deeper problem to fix. But if you've been united to Jesus, he flips that script. And he says, the outside may look the same, but what I've begun to do on the inside is make new things in this person's life. This should give us a chance, I think. It's often been said, Christians don't need more information, we need more imagination. We need to imagine what Jesus can do, who's been raised from the dead, breaking the power of sin, who has the power of new life at his disposal, because he's the only one who's been raised from the dead. He is the only one that can break sin's power in our lives. And when we come to him, he will and does. And we need a greater imagination for the potential and possibilities of what he could do in our own hearts. And as a result, we dream that way for what he might be able to do in our world through us. Immediately, our imagination just should begin to explode when we hear the resurrection of the potentiality of what God could do. I'm concerned, I'm afraid, that too many are overly concerned, too many of us are overly concerned with the problem with the culture and too under-concerned with our own personal holiness because it's harder to change the human heart from a love of ourselves to a love of neighbors, that is harder to change than the culture around us. And it is incredibly difficult to change any culture. But it is even more difficult to change the human heart. Some of you who are parents understand this acutely. Because what's writ large in any culture is simply the deep desires of the heart. The heart manifests itself in the physical world around us. And therefore, the human heart's got to be changed to create a different world. I mean, greedy hearts dream up greedy dreams. Wars break out as a result. Institutions exploit people. Prideful hearts create systems that advantage some and disadvantage others. That shouldn't surprise us. Like, the Bible's just full of examples of this happening. It's true whether it's a small business or your, a country or just your home. Greed and pride will manifest itself in the culture of your home, too. So part of walking with Jesus is just reimagining ourselves. Saying to ourselves, that's not who you are. You don't have to live and give in to that way anymore. You are united to Jesus. He has died for sins and raised you for new life. And then put that on as the lens through which we see everything. And notice this, in verse 30, as Paul's, as the resurrection of Jesus is producing creative juices in Paul, he's beginning to see life in a different way. And this is where he goes. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, I die every day. He's put the lens on and said, if the death and resurrection of Jesus is true, I need to see life in light of it and live life in light of it. And so I need to die every day. It echoes Jesus' words on take up your cross. If you're going to follow me, take up your cross every day. But notice what Paul is embracing is the very dynamics of the gospel that are at work to change us. 
if we are not dying every day, we are not going to experience the resurrection power of Jesus because he in his death and resurrection is the source of new life. And if we want to skip dying to ourselves, we're also going to skip being changed into his likeness. And so Paul, Paul eventually says, just begin to live in light of this new reality. Paul by the way, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 3 because this is exactly what he does in Colossians 3. Again, this is the pattern of God's kingdom. If, if, if we treat Jesus like he's a primary job is just to be a therapeutic counselor and make us feel good about ourselves and we're going to miss his power because he's the risen king, the divine warrior who has ushered in a new creation. And so wake up, the battle's at hand. The initial victory of sin's dominion has been cut. It's been laid down. The kingdom of Satan has been broken. As Mark reminded us, the church, because it belongs to the resurrected Jesus and is his body, will march forward in victory in this world. And the gates of hell will not prevail. This final victory is guaranteed. And so fight this fight. Now, Colossians 3, verse 5. In light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, again, he makes this personal. This is what he's done. At the end of the middle part of chapter 2 of Colossians, he's talked about the death and resurrection of Jesus. The beginning of chapter 3 in Colossians, he reminds us, Christ has been raised, and because what's true about Jesus is true about his people, you've been raised and you're seated with him, so what? Put to death, verse 5 of chapter 3 of Colossians. Put to death, therefore... What is earthly in you? Death, resurrection, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. It's just not who you are anymore. You're in Christ, the resurrected one who died to sin has been raised to new life. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. There are things, Paul's like, okay, death, resurrection, reign of Jesus with all power and authority. Now put your hand to the work that he's actually doing in this world to change the human heart. And imagine yourselves, not as a victim of sin, but as a co-heir with Christ. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project in the world. And that project is not to snatch away people from earth, but to colonize earth with the people of heaven. Just after the climax, the climactic scene in the Lord of the Rings, Samwise Ganji wakes up from a near-death ordeal. He had almost died. Gandalf, the Christ figure in the story, or one of the Christ figures in the story, had died a while ago. And when Samwise wakes up, there's Gandalf again. He's been raised 
But he's in more triumphant glory than he was before. His his power has been amplified by the experience of death and resurrection. And so he asks them, what Gandalf, what's happening in the world? Is everything sad coming untrue? And then Gandalf replies, a great shadow has departed now. And then it said he laughed. And his laughter was like the sound of music or like the water on a parched land. And he, as he listened to Sam thought, He had not heard laughter before. It was such a pure sound of merriment for days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echoes of joy he had never heard. Because someone from the future had broken into the present with redeeming power. Here's the thing about the story, if you know it. That's not the end. It's the middle. The whole rest of the story is them fighting the rest of the fight, but they're doing so with a new sense of joy and laughter in the midst because they know that the final battle has already been won. And so let's laughter, singing, and dreaming be what shapes our life in Jesus because God is taking this all somewhere. Verse 24. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until all his enemies have been put under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection to his, under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's claimed that it doesn't mean God the Father. But when he has put all things in subjection to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected. And the one who died for sin and been raised to new life on that day will gather all of his people together, as well as the new creation that he's planted in the earth where sin is no more and death is no more, and he will present it back to his father and saying, that point, God will be all in all. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the table, it is with this certain hope that you are not absent from us, but present. You are not distant, but near. You are not powerless, but full of power that brings new life out of dead areas. And so as we come to your table, do that kind of work again. For we come to this table and eat and drink. Because you're a shepherd who set this amongst our enemies. But we also do so in anticipation that you will come again. We pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen.